Shut up and sit down. Can you guys hear me? My my thing wasn't plugged in, so I hope you can hear me now. Okay. Did you hear any of me? Because I was, like, bitching about my nose. Great. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thought I had some dead air to remove. Oh, Rogue did? Okay. Okay. Um. Um. Okay. Ugh. I had to, uh, I had a, I forgot my allergy medication, for those of you who missed it. Um, and, um, so, well, I forgot part of my allergy medication, so I'm all congested and shit. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, it's just a great start. Great start. Um. So annoying. Okay. <clears throat> the nose knows. Yeah. And I hate, I hate, I honestly, Flonase is great. It's a fantastic product and it really helps a lot. But I loathe the way it smells. It is so heinous. Oh. And of course, you know, you would think that that's something that you're going to put in your nose. They'd put a little more effort into it. Am I the only one who really doesn't like the smell of roses or is it just me? Oh, I hate the smell of roses. Mm. And Flonase smells like roses to me. So I got a funeral up my nose. I, now, that's why I don't like roses. I associate roses with funerals. And I just don't. Ugh. It's just terrible. Okay. Ugh. Ugh. It's just disgusting. So, uh, me and Julie both finished our rough trade yesterday, early this morning. Yes, we did. Ever how you want to weirdly count co- that time? We're weirdly close to the same word count too. <laughs> I was aiming oh. for forty, uh, thirty when I started, but you know, I very quickly, like after the first day, just admitted it was going to be fifty. So I was really hoping I was going to tell it in fifty, but no, nah. Nah. Yep. I don't even remember where you started. I do know that there's some people worried about your changing word count. Like, yeah, I was like, <laughs> I don't even know. I don't remember actually where I started. I'm sure someone does. Um, but um, I just kept fluctuating because I replotted several times before this before the thing even started, and then I I had a little emotional crisis when my little dog ran away. Um, and inserted an emotional support penguin. 
animal characters tend to get added to my stories when something upsets me like that. I got my little dog back, but he was in prison for four days before I found him because the first picture they put on the up on the on the um city website just didn't look like him. It just did not look like him at all. And then I got to look in and they had some more pictures. And I was like, oh, well, that's definitely him. And I went to get him, but it had been four days. And so he's developed, he has some prison experience now. And, and, for, and this is really weird, but he's hiding his food bowl under his blanket. Um, okay. <laughs> it wasn't like he was even sharing a cell with another inmate. I mean, he was in there by himself. Because he's small, right? And is it okay? Susan says it's a common behavior for people, for for animals. I said people, for animals who have been in kennels. Um, why? Why? What I mean? Why? I don't. I don't. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Dogs. Ah. Uh, well, he already had food issues because he's a rescue, and when I got him, um, he had been starved. And, um, in fact, both my dogs um, have food issues for that reason. They were both severely underweight. Um, in fact, my vet told me that um, Jack probably would not survive and that I shouldn't get too emotionally invested. Um, so so his first six months, he was on um, – I had him on daily vitamins and – I carried him around like a baby and just, you know, just really spoiled this dog rotten because I thought he wasn't going to make it. <sighs> Fourteen years later, <laughs> he's still spoiled ass rotten, and now he's got prison experience. <laughs> he's an ex-con. He's an ex-con. He's got a record and a mugshot. Well, I, well, I actually picked him up from being impounded. Um I had never microchipped him because he's a picker, and I was afraid that the microchip would um, migrate because they do. They do move under the skin, and I was afraid that he would pick it out or dig it out because he's, he's really sensitive that way. But so far, he hasn't messed with it, but I think maybe he would have it when he was young. Um, but because um, I have an aunt whose miniature pincher dug his microchip out. It was terrible. Wow. Ugh, that's gross. And yeah, horrifying. it was terrible. He had to, yeah, he had to have surgery and everything. It was terrible, and he had really sensitive skin like Jack does. So I was like, maybe I just don't need to do that. But I, but they did it for me, and now I didn't know that there was no choice in it because they didn't even know who he belonged to. Um, so he came back, and when I was checking him out of the pound, um, they gave me his paperwork. I said, Oh, look, his little mugshot. <laughs> Go with me, but yeah. My dog has a record. <laughs> He's been impounded. But he gets for being a fugitive. Right, right. But yeah, he's hiding his food under his blanket and um I had actually considered taking the um the the blanket away from him, but maybe not because that might actually increase his his stress. Um, so I guess I'll just let him keep his blanket. I mean, anyways, I'm sure he'll stop if that's not his usual mo. Is be hiding his food. <laughs> 
Don't you think he'll stop? I don't know. Revert back to his, I mean, I already have to, to feed him in his. I have to feed him in his crate because when I first got him, and he was the only dog, he was so um, nervous and insecure about eating that he would take food out of the bowl and go back to his crate and drop it on the floor and eat it. So I was like, okay. So I just moved his bowl into his crate with his blanket, and he it really calmed him down. And now both my dogs eat in their crates for that particular – because it was Jack's habit. And when I got Kronos, um, when it was time to eat, he would go get in the crate. I was like, oh, great, fine. He's he's really rubbed off on the on the new one. So that they both eat in their crates. So he already has some security. And he also won't start eating until you shut the door. And he used to not be that way. That's a prison development as well. So um, prison changed him. He, prison changed him. Just four days. That'll do it. When I went to pick him up, they had little signs because he was in the adoption area. He'd been there. Um, they they leave a lost and found dog there in the lost and found for two days, and then they go into the adoption area, which is terrible. I, I'd have I'd have been so upset if I'd have realized it was him, and then he got adopted out. Um, and uh, but I understand well, why. We I mean, don't have a lot of space. That's still not very long. I mean, no, wow. but they don't have a lot of space and. Um, I would much rather them put those dogs up for adoption and hope they get adopted rather than just putting them down. Because at 14, I don't think he's very adoptable. And so I was really glad they didn't just consider him a lost cause. Um, but um, he was in the little section in his little sign, um, like his behaviors, to, you know, to make him like, you know, more attractive for adoption was that, okay, that he was housebroken he was dog friendly, which isn't necessarily true. Um, <laughs> and that he, maybe he was dog intimidated. <laughs> yeah, he might have been. Um, and that he was a cuddle monster, which is also true. If 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 he could spend his whole day in my lap, he would. But he's he's thirty eight pounds dog, and thirty eight pounds of dog isn't necessarily a lap dog. It all depends upon how big your lap is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my dog's a convict. He ran away from home. Yeah. I had to pay 40 bucks to get him out. I had to pay... Um, Fortunately, he was licensed and everything, so I didn't have to pay the impound fee of $50. But I did have to pay $10 a day for room and board. Seems ridiculous. <laughs> well, yeah, I had to bail him out. It could have been worse. It could have been 100 So, yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Let's let's actually talk about something to do with writing, so this 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 um, episode will be titled properly. Um, now that we've discussed my convict dog for thirteen minutes, <sighs> we didn't get anybody have a convict dog. We we agreed that Flonay stinks and that roses. Yeah, less yeah, people yeah, like yeah, the smell of roses <laughs> than have, might have been reported. <laughs> 
I don't know why I thought that was a good idea. Because it had to be added I, to it. It may be, it may not be actual like rose smell. It could be like an unintentional thing. I'm inclined to think it's an unintentional, but it, it like equates to the smell of roses, but it's not. I can't imagine they actually put rose. They, they anybody thought putting rose up somebody's nose would be a good idea. Because it's really a terrible medication. Yeah, that's just that's just dumb. We have to read the enclosed materials to get ingredients. Anyway, it's actually, it's a very good medicine for um, decongestion and allergy, but God, it stinks. I use Nasacort because back when I could smell, I didn't like the smell of um, of Flonase. And I think there's a, um, even though I can't actually smell it anymore, my brain tells me that I can, if that makes sense. It's sort of a psychosomatic reaction. You know, my brain says, this stinks, you know it stinks, even though you can't actually smell it. So we don't want to have any, we we don't want none of that. It's like um, <laughs> we all got it in our nose. Well, I'm not on the chat. Animal characters. Okay. Um, okay. The thing about animal characters is that I, you have to be. Um, careful not to um, give them human traits, but more importantly, you must not ever give in to the temptation of giving them a POV. Oh, yes. Please don't. I can't say I've never done it. When I was younger, I probably did. Um, But it's not a good idea. I can understand why it's tempting, but it... Just don't do it. Unless you're telling a kid's story and the whole thing's from a dog's point of view, not a good idea. There was an anthology a few, like, I want to say at least a decade ago, maybe more, that was all tales, sci-fi stories about dogs. I'm sh- I read several of the stories in there, um, and I'm sure, you know, some of them had the dog's point of view. Um but that was a completely different circumstance. But would I write Quartz POV at the SGC? Only a Quark was actually an alien. And he was somehow central to the plot. Wait, it had to be his story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the issue. Sometimes people—that's the thing about point of view—is it—it's got to when when somebody who's not a main character has a point of view, it needs to serve really serve a purpose. <laughs> um, and so often it doesn't. And I'm just reading it, going, "What is this? Why is this? I don't get it."
I would say, um, <clears throat> like, there was this fic where, um, uh, <clears throat> Hedwig went back in time, and it was told from her point of view. Mm-hmm. Magic sent her back in time to save Harry. But it was crack because, like, she 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 ate this little potion ball on Diagon Alley that gave her laser beams for her eyes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but um, the most my face tempting... is strugg- my my facial expression is struggling. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And and Trevor, he becomes a he um, um he becomes a uh her sidekick and um like there's this whole side plot where they go around fighting crime. Anyways, um it, it's <laughs> it's total crack and it works because it's what it is. It's crack. Um yeah, laser owl, kung fu toad and foamy. Of course Azure would know. Foamy is the dart rat that Harry buys at the pet shop shop and he puts it in the cage with um Peter Pettigrew and to torture Peter. He actually buys a dart rat, the the, the, the dark the dart lord of rats and names him Foamy. <laughs> and why does he put this in the cage with Peter? To torture Peter <laughs> So just mental trauma. Yeah. And physical trauma too, because Foamy is <laughs> quite terrible. <laughs> Peter's getting his ass off on a daily basis. I don't know why he's um, foaming at the mouth. I don't think he actually has rabies, but um, yeah, it's hilarious. And he does know that Scrabbers is Peter. It wasn't just him torturing, you know, Ron's pet for no reason. He knows that it's Pettigrew because Hedwig has filled him in. But um, I don't even yeah, it's, it's I don't I don't even know what to say. It's so much crack. It's it's just really funny. Um, but uh, I think that there are times like I, I would be tempted to give um, Fox is that how you say his name in Harry Potter? Um, the Phoenix a point of view, um, especially if, if he was integral to my plot, um, because he's a magical creature. But the most tempting POV in Finding Atlantis that I ignored was actually the city. Not writing Theseus's point of view several times during the narrative was difficult. I mean, because I, I really wanted to after I started writing. But it, but it didn't fit the rhythm of my story. Wow. Wow. Okay. Because Theseus is is moving through my narrative the whole time, and he's he's always there. Um, yep, he's, he's there in every moment, the whole yeah, way. So it was it was difficult. Yeah, the fic was um, Laser Hedwig and Trevor and Foamy. It's called Let's Do the Time Warp Again, and it's on fanfiction.net. But, yeah, it's just, it's hilarious.
Okay, if anybody has any questions, just drop them in the chat. I'm trying to keep up with the chat, and if we get more than one, I will snag them. (laughs) Okay. But, yeah, I mean, I think uh, outside points of view, like animal characters and, um, uh, like, a sentient city or um, the character of Jarvis in the MCU, uh, I think these points of view... um, Especially when it comes to like Jarvis and maybe Atlantis as um, as an artificial intelligence, an artificial intelligence point of view um, has the potential to be very interesting and integral um, to a story that you're telling. Uh, But again, I think you have to be careful. Yeah, very careful. Because you run the chance of head hopping. And you also run the chance of, um, when it comes to an artificial uh, point of view, like Jarvis or like Atlantis or Theseus or um, Dummy or you, you you run the chance of, uh, you have to be careful and keep your language warm. Otherwise, I think that um, it can become very clinical. And... um, you will lose intimacy in your narrative. So you want to avoid um, a dryness in the POV, if that that makes any sense at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't exactly, I just, I'm really careful with, you know, well, I have been less careful in the past than I am about point of view now. Um, but it really is really important to make sure that the point of view you choose um, serves serves the story. And there is there is t- temptation um, there is temptation to to the easy the easy thing to do um, is. I'm not, I'm not figuring out a phrase as well. Um, is whenever you want to convey something that, that character X knows, is to just go into character X's point of view. But if you do that, then you could wind up with 30 points of view. And it just, it doesn't, that, that, and there may have been a time when a lot of points of view, there's a lot of things that you used to see in fiction that you don't see anymore. And, Points of view typically in most fiction genres are more intimate than they used to be. By and large, I think it's because the way we we communicate as a um, changes, and you see a formality in a book like Pride and Prejudice that you would not see today. I mean, there's a rigidness in in those works from that time period that speak to the social discourse that the, that the writers were living in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not what audiences get in, in fiction today. So um, I hear an interesting array of excuses for having a ton of points of view. Um, if you want that high level if you really want that high-level perspective, 
learn to write omniscient. It is kind of a dying point of view. It's not done very well very often. But if that's really what your thing is, you really want to have that global, that broad perspective, is learn to write an omniscient narrator. But I would say most people don't do it well. Yeah, most people think they're writing well. an omniscient narrator. Yeah. I mean, most people, I mean, I don't. It, most people who, who think they're writing an omniscient narrator are, are head hopping. We've talked about that before. If you want a good example of an omniscient narrator, in my opinion, it's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The narrator in that story is a completely separate voice from everything else. And you, even though it zooms in, that narrator zooms in on certain aspects because you have to. You can't tell every aspect of the story at once, right? It has to pick and choose where it's going to zoom in. It is this distinct, clear, separate voice from everybody else. And it is, to me, like one of the best examples of a good omniscient narrator. Now, not not every omniscient narrator is that distinct and that um, unique, um, some are a lot more subtle, but the hallmarks are all there, which is that it is not like you, you see in everybody's head at the same time. It is telling um, – it's sort of like telling the story through the lens of somebody who's not in the story. So it's kind of like a like imagine – you create a character almost who tells the story, who happens to know all the facts, and it's that voice that you're telling the story in. A narrator's voice, which is completely different than jumping from one character to another, which is what most people who think they're writing omniscient do. They just head hop. They head hop like a omniscient. I think just to keep it clear in your brain, the omniscient is the god point of view. Um, not the god, but a god, like the the god of the universe that that that, that is being written. It would be like if Eru told the story of Lord of the Rings. To the right, um, to the reader. But I think people confuse God point of view with meaning mind reading, um, which is where the head hopping <laughs> vibe comes in. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, oh, God, God is in everybody's head. No, don't think of it like that. Think of it as a separate narrator who knows everything. They know everybody's motivations. You can, and also, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna. This is just my opinion here. But I'm going to flat out say you cannot do an omniscient, unreliable narrator. Zero sense. That's just me. Because um, I think if you're going to do a, a God point of view, which is the narrator who knows everything, they, they cannot be um, unreliable. They have to – otherwise you are deliberately misleading the audience in a way that feels disingenuous to me. So uh, a classic example of that apparently is Anna Karenia by Leo Tolstoy, which Tolstoy, which I don't read his work, so I don't know for sure what the what the um, what the quality is on that. But assuming who he is, um, I'm sure he did a a great job. (laughs) I just don't find his work compelling. Okay, so point of view. We've done. We, I mean, point of view is like. I think we wind up coming to point of view so much because I feel like it's, it's foundational and yet it's very difficult for people to really master. Which is why, you know, 
it's really important, I think, even people who hate first-person point of view to try it because I don't think you really, people, you really understand that narrow lens of point of view until you've tried first-person. It's the best illustration for I, I totally agree. I think that everyone should write in first person at least once so that you know what you're looking at, so that you understand the the um, the mechanics of point of view. So apparently, okay, some other novels in third person, Omniscient, um, Anna Karenina by Leah Toy- Tolstoy, Little Women by Louisa May Alcott, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, 1984 by George Orwell, and Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Some of those didn't strike me when I read them as omniscient, but okay, okay. Me neither. I think the only one I, I would not have read about Pride and Prejudice. I start Anna. I started Anna Karenina, but I didn't particularly wasn't really digging it, so I never finished it. Um, no, I didn't either. It's just like I don't know. There's something about it that doesn't resonate with me. I just couldn't connect to it. Um, okay, um, so we did have a couple. The first question I've got here that was from above, I don't think I've only got two. Oh, no, there's a third one. Okay, so I've got three that I've caught. Um, the first one is, what is the grammar or writing rule that you didn't realize was a thing until someone else confronted you with it? I just got slapped with some rules about dashes, which I admit that I am bad about. Um, I'm not sure it qualifies as an actual grammar rule, but I didn't know that there were two kinds of ordinances. I assumed it was just the same word in different contexts. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean the two different spellings? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I didn't know that there was a city ordinance and military ordinance. Yeah, yeah. munitions. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that the rule and the munition wasn't spelled the same way. But I'm not sure if that counts as an actual grammar rule. But I was startled by it. <laughs> I was yeah, like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I the word the one the word one that I that kind of knocked me over as a feather because I've been using it wrong my whole life is um like if you're going to pour over some documents, I'd always spelled it P O U R and it's not spelled that way. It's spelled P O R E. And um, when I learned that, I I was, I had to have been, I probably was late 30s when I learned that. I've been using that wrong for almost 40 years, right? I was like, holy crap. Um, That sort of shocked me. Um, Um. I the the two the two there's two different spellings for forego, and I know the difference between them, but I can't keep them right in my head. Um, which one is which? Which one means to go ahead of somebody, and which one means to do without? So when I actually use the word, like when I'm editing, because I always spell it wrong, I always pick the wrong one, because um, you know one spells with an e and one doesn't, and I always have the wrong one, and so I know I have to double check forego before I post, except I often forget to do that. So um, that's not a case of 
sort of it slapped me, you know, like slapped me was shockingly. I I knew there was a difference between the two words, but I just can't keep them straight in my head, which means which. Um, <laughs> I would avoid using it all together. I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah. So I would say I would say word usage gets me a little bit more. The one thing, okay, the one thing is I have a terrible habit, and a lot of people do, of putting commas in front of dependent clauses. And dependent clauses, by their nature, don't get a comma in front of them. Um, and I've done this my whole life. It's just when there's a then there, I put a, uh, I put a comma in front of it, especially then. I don't know why then trips me up more than as, because also trips me up. Now, sometimes a dependent clause isn't uh, – sometimes um, a, a subordinate conjunction is not – prefacing a dependent clause is prefacing a parenthetical phrase so it's really hard to you have to be able to contextually know what you're looking at but I think sometimes I want to put a comma before then because often I am using the word then to replace the word and to break up my um, monotony and my senses you're using it as a coordinate conjunction and it's it's technically not on that list so, uh, but I think that that could change. I think a lot of people use it that way, but you know, like when I see that in something, I change it to and then because otherwise, like a, it's a comma splice. So if you got if you got two independent clauses separated by then, um, technically a comma splice, although it's a weird one. So I just that but one, I, but I didn't think and then was really appropriate to say. I mean, uh, to use and then. Because it is, and it's it is two actions done at the same time, and then is an action done after, like one after the other. So, well, if you're doing a list, where it's appropriate is in list. So, um, I'm going to go to the store, drop off the dry cleaning, and then come home. You don't okay. say, "I'm going to go to the store, drop off the dry cleaning, then come home." It's and then come home. So it, it is and then in a list. Uh, but because you can start a sentence with then, you actually can technically join two. But it's it's not so much that that was like shocked me that rule because it didn't because I learned about dependent clauses in in grade school. But it's just like in my head, I I I hear then, and sometimes because as a coordinate con- coordinating conjunction, and not a subordinate conjunction. So I put a comma in front of it, and I know I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> But that's yeah, when my reference come out. Those are my issues mostly with words like lead and lead. I used to use lead as the past tense of lead. Like he led me into the room. That should be led. And um, the first time I realized I was using lead, I was like, Why yeah, am I like using lead, and lead metal. where it should? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was like. Yeah. That is so annoying. How many times have I done that in my life? Because, you know, once you realize it on your own, it's actually more, I think, traumatizing than if someone tells you. And like, oh, okay, great. But then for you not to have that logical leap on your own years before you do, you're like, oh, my God, how stupid have I been? <laughs> yeah. It's really annoying. Um, so at effect and effect came up in chat. Um, I... People often give the simple rule that with an A it's a verb and with um, with an E it's a it's a noun. That's not true. They both have a noun and a verb form. Um, 
the the verb effect spelled with an A means like, um, you know, what I'm doing here could affect things tomorrow. Okay, so, um, but with with as a noun, it is affect. Like your emotional affect is strange. It's the way you're acting. It's your outward display. Um, effect as a um, as a verb would be like, um, I'm going to have an effect on you or we're going to go pick up his personal effects. Um, but as a verb, I'm sorry, that's the noun form. As a verb, it'd be like, we're going to affect change um, with the, the things we say today. So both words have a noun and a verb form. And so the rule is, it, it, it's garbage. It's absolute garbage to tell people if it's a noun, you use this. If it's a verb, you do that because, no. <laughs> they're both nouns. They're both verbs, and it all is context. But typically, the word most people use the most is effect with an A, meaning the verb I'm going to, you know, what you said affected me deeply. The verb form with an A is, is the most common thing. Um, I always associate the A with action yes. and a with the action. E with change. Um, e with change. And so that this, that's how I keep them straight in my head. And that's the only way I use them. Unless I am using affect, which is usually when I'm talking about someone's emotional state. And that's something, you right. know, like. But in your head, you pronounce, they're pronounced differently. It's the, it's the only one, the, the, the noun form of, of with an A it's pronounced differently. It's pronounced affect, not effect. And right. so in your head, you hear it differently, so you don't make the confusion there. But the E form gets people mixed up because we're going to affect change versus I'm going to pick up his personal effects. It's pronounced the same. It's spelled the same. One's a verb, one's a noun. If you're a technical expert in a topic and you notice an author do something that makes no sense, would you contact the author about it? No, I would not. No. If they haven't invited... Not unless they ask. Um, not unless they have something at the bottom of their fix saying, hey, if I fuck this up, let me know. And then I'll be okay, I'll let you know. But if they didn't, nope. <laughs> because you haven't been invited to enter their space um, and you need to stay out of an author's space. It's It's, it's that simple. Now, there are some people who've given me, like, blanket, you know, invitations to tell them if I see an issue in something. But even I would still hesitate over certain things. Like, if I read something old of somebody's and I saw a problem with it, um, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go poking at that. But if they had given me something to look at or I had read something of theirs that they were working on or whatever, if I had that blanket invitation – I might, you know, if I saw an egregious error, say this is not the way that would work. But still, I mean, like sometimes you read something um, where like nothing works, and it's like if the person corrected everything that was wrong with it, there'd be no story left. And then at that point, it's just like you just shut up because there's like, what's the point? <laughs> there's nothing left. Leave, leave, leave it all. Just leave all the mistakes. Once we take out everything that doesn't make sense, there's just the end. Um, no, nothing. 
I, the only time I, no, I mean, unless I was in an editor I beta can't. alpha reader capacity, I would not contact somebody. I would not intrude upon their process. I'm trying to think about me being on AO3 and seeing something that would make me break that rule, and I can't think of what it is. I, I mean, if if, if I if don't I, comment on those pedophile files and tell them how disgusting they are, then really there's nothing that anybody could do on AO3 that would get me so ramped up that I have to feel that I feel the need to email them without their permission. Without if I manage to. I managed to read. I read a story where we have talked. I've talked about this: the improbable sex act, impossible sex act. It's not just improbable because those guys have to be enormous. Where there was double anal penetration going on, but the two guys doing the fucking were standing side by side. That is, that it, it cannot happen. It can't happen. It doesn't work that way. Those would be the biggest, most flexible dicks in the planet. Very long, very flexible. Oh, the, we're talking fantastic. That was not happening. Right. I mean, we're talking we're talking tentacles here. That's the only way that position works, right? So I if I manage if I manage to get through reading that and not write the author and tell them they were out to lunch with that sex position, I I can get through reading anything because I I don't think I've ever read anything in 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 a piece of fanfic that was more physically impossible than two guys standing side by side fucking the same guy in the ass. It just, no. Oh, so. there, there, is that one, there is that one situation in that one fandom where the author had the uh, two um, men um, having one put his penis in the other's penis. Yeah. That's not the way that works like, Okay, that's, Okay, so those of you who've never seen a penis, that's not how that works. Now, there is a thing called docking where if one of the men or both of the men have a foreskin that they can put the heads of their penises together, peni, ever how you say it, and stretch the foreskin over onto the other man, the head of the other man's penis, and then jack, eat, and, and, and then jack off with it, and that's called docking. There's also another form of docking um, in, in sexual... Uh, that we're not going to discuss. Um, is it called space docking? Let me make sure. Yeah, it's called space docking. Don't look it up. Um, so, uh, but... Okay, so... Um, be careful what you Google. Be careful what you Google. That's just right. That's just the right. thing. So, but the um, only way that you can put two penises together is is that with the foreskin, and it's not an insertion. It's more like a um, a folding over of the foreskin. If you've never seen somebody who's not circumcised, that probably doesn't make any sense to you. Watch some porn. Um, to be fair, create the to be fair a pocket. I have seen some pretty extreme sounding before, um, but the guy doing the inserting would have to have a very tiny dick. Because I mean, I've seen like sounding to the you know extreme that you can get somebody's finger in there pretty easily. Um, For those of you who don't know what sounding in your urethral sounding is when you put um, uh, basically metal rods 
into the penis to the urethra. Um, Preferably metal rods because people people do all kinds of crazy things: pens, toothbrushes, whatever. Yeah, um, you don't, don't want that. Don't do you don't that. actually want Be- to do urethral sounding without some serious experience. Um, it is not for the um, uninitiated. Yes, you need you need to know you need, you need to be with a partner who knows what they're doing, uh, but some people do quite extreme stretching with urethral sounding. Um, but even at the most extreme I've, I've ever seen anybody do that, um, couldn't the get average a normal would, pe- you couldn't get a normal penis in there. Maybe a micro. It would penis, have to, but then what would be the point? You might you might be able oh, if, it, well. if it was very slender micro penis. As long as it's not thicker than about a man's finger, you, you might be able to. But that's not. I mean. That's pretty extreme. You but know, also, I don't think it's very pleasurable for the person getting it. And dick figging is a thing, um, but I think that kind of that level of masochism is kind of dangerous. Personally, I mean, what's your limit if ginger in your dick isn't it? <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, you might you, you might have just already blown out all the nerve endings in your dick, and you can't even feel it anymore. I don't know how that works, but um. <laughs> for those of you who don't know what figging is, figging is when you take a piece of raw ginger that you've carved into whatever shape you need it to be in, um, and insert it into an orifice. Most often, um, I think that the anus is the choice. And what you don't, if you don't know, ginger when it gets warm, it gets hot. Um, and if you put a piece of ginger, raw ginger, on your tongue and keep it there, you'll understand what that sensation feels like. Well, imagine that sensation in your um, vaginal canal or your anus. It's pretty intense. Um, yeah, no. I mean, it's, it's it wouldn't be my thing. I mean, I just actually touched myself down there with a little bit of ginger or juice on my finger. You know, this is like more like a kind of going into the bathroom scenario after having cut ginger in the kitchen, and just that much was like, oh my god, I need I need a cold compress and to sit on an ice pack for the next you know hour. Um, it it's not. Um, um, so yeah, just don't. If you read stuff like this, it may read improbable. The person writing it may have no clue what they're doing. They may actually know exactly what they're doing. But don't try stuff you've read in fanfic. That's just no way to spend One of the reasons why I shied away from stuff like figging and urethral sounding and stuff like that in Ties That Bind is I didn't want to encourage practices that could get severely, severely out of hand very quickly for people. And, you know, it just shouldn't be trusted with that kind of thing yeah i mean i've never done sounding when it when we didn't use like autoclave sounds and sterile lube and you know like betadine and you know and yet you know i see people like <laughs> stories just like i and that that's kind of the extreme end of making sure you're staying safe but you know i see people like licking sounds and stories and i just i'm like my eyes are rolling right out of my head so Yes, there's less and more sterile practices, and there's the spectrum of safe has varying degrees of cleanliness in it. But the stuff you read in fan fiction is just that's that's absurd. It's a lot of it's just ridiculous. So just don't try anything. Or the only thing you've ever read it is is in fanfic. That's just no. And also start small. 
Never go for the biggest thing. I mean, if you're trying plugging for the first time, get a small one. If you're trying um, a dildo for the first time and you've only ever had sex with a re- with a man, or you only had um, intercourse with fingers, and you want to try a dildo, don't go to the store and buy the biggest one. Stay away from bad. Work dragon, your way up. You know. Work your way up to that. You don't, and, and maybe you don't even need it. Just because you can put it up there doesn't mean you should. That should go on a t-shirt. <laughs> And every every doctor and nurse who's ever worked in an emergency room will get it. Um. <laughs> yes, definitely wash your toys when you get them from the store. Don't assume just because they're packed in um, airtight plastic or that they've been um, vacuum sealed that they're clean. Um, take care of you. It hurts nothing to give it a pre-wash. Yeah. And also, if you're... If, I would actually, at this point in my life, only buy accessories like that that I can stick in the dishwasher. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely top shelf. Buy, uh, you know, if if you splurge on the nice, you know, if you splurge on the nice silicon dildo, you've got something that feels got a nice seal to it. Blah 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 blah. Don't use your nice silicon lube with it. Public service announcement: you will ruin your dildo. You need to have water-based lube for a silicon for any kind of silicon toy. Honestly, Just saying. I think unless, unless you're, um, I don't, I don't buy silicone-based lube for any, particularly any reason, especially if you're young and you're single and you're using condoms because they can degrade condoms. It's always just best to use a water-based lube. Um, uh, I guess maybe unless you're doing anal, and then you really need to go towards something like boy butter anyway. Um, actually, the, I like, I like, want, I prefer silicone lubes for um, anal, um, not like really? fisting or anything. Yeah, um, but I don't. I wouldn't put silicone lube up, you know, up my hoo ha. But they're not good for condoms. No, silicone oh, lube is ever... fine for condoms. It's oil. It's oh. oil. You can't use on condoms. Oil, oil. Um, you can tell how long it's since I use lube. I mean, well, uh, condoms. Uh, I've been married forever, guys. Um, um, but silicon-based, when you use a silicon-based lube with a silicon toy, the, they can bond together, oh. creating an unfortunate situation. Um, don't do it. Yeah. A good cleanliness tip is to also use condoms on your toys if you're inserting them a lot. It's um, very handy to use those if you if you don't have a problem with latex. Um but I think if you're just using it for toys, you could probably buy the more natural condoms, and it would just be just a option just to just to keep it cleaner. Um, yeah. But uh. Oh, and also, if you ever get the urge to splurge on a glass dildo, don't buy a big one. The lack They're of unforgiving. Give is sh- yeah, the, the lack of give is shocking. You'll be like, oh, a, a, that's a glass dildo is. is is stunningly um, filling. Um, in fact, I would honestly, uh, if I bought one today, I would get one smaller than my husband. I would get one smaller than um, just get one smaller than your than your your normal sexual partner. Yeah, um, um, your normal intake because they really warm. are unforgiving. Very, and I would recommend soaking them in warm water before you get going um 
they can carry the cold for quite a while. Or if, if temperature play is your thing, you can put that baby in the freezer ahead of time. You know, Ooh. have fun. I don't like um, cold, but I do think that a warm bath for your for your glass dildo is great. Or metal, if you've got something you know, like stainless steel or something, that works well for that too. Um, don't put it up there cold, unless unless like I said, unless unless cold is your thing. I I don't particularly like it. But also, you don't want a long glass dildo. I mean, re- remember that while your vagina is very pliable and, and your cervix is, is very, you, you don't want to ram something that hard up against your cervix comp- repeatedly. You can bruise your cervix, and um, you can even damage your cervix, and that can um, impact your your reproductiveness if you're in that age where that's a concern for you. Um, so you don't want to um, cause your cervix irreparable harm. And a big giant glass dildo could do that for you, especially if you're letting a partner do it for you. Um, and they're not paying attention to your body cues. Well, honestly, I wouldn't let a man use a glass dildo on me. I mean, not, not even my husband, because he couldn't feel when that was going the wrong way. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no way for him to know. I honestly prefer glass and metal as plugs and not as dildos. That's my preference because anything that's going to be inserted potentially repeatedly is going to do kind of any kind of fucking with it. I like something a little bit more pliable. Right. But the the rigidity in, a, in when it comes to a plug can be a very interesting experience. So, um, it's people really like it. People really don't. But it's you know it can be a fun thing to try. But get small when it's, if it's that rigid, you want to get smaller than you think you would normally get. Because it can get like psychologically uncomfortable before it gets physically uncomfortable. And um, especially for ladies, if you're psychologically uncomfortable in a sex act, your arousal is going to plummet. Unless you get off on being uncomfortable. And I don't know many people who do. I mean, and I know a lot of masochists, and most of them don't get off on psychological discomfort. <laughs> yeah. Physical discomfort, yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fine line between, like, um, excitement and fear. See, so, yeah, that's beautiful. That's something you put on your on your shelf, not in your... Not in your junk. <clears throat> okay, so we have other questions. Um, okay, so our next question is: When pacing a scene, what do you do when you're trying to make sure to get the information in, but the scene seems to be dragging and you haven't gotten to the important parts yet, points yet? My font is too small. Um, Personally, I think I would take out all of the uh, narrative and write it straight as dialogue um, and then go back into it and put uh, dialogue tags and um, narrative transitions in. I think you, I think it's also good to look at why you're dragging. Um, what is, if you haven't gotten to the important part, well, what have you gotten to? 
um, because you've gotten to something if you feel like your, your scene is dragging. So there's something there. You've got it in front of you that is dragging you down. Um, and it could be that it's something not obvious, like it's a point of view issue, which I, I know people probably hate when I say, well, it might be a point of view issue. But being in the wrong point of view can make a scene lag because you're having to throw in a lot of extra explanation um, because you're not in the right person's head. Or you're in, a, in the point of view of somebody who has too much information or too little, and they're having to do a lot of inference. There's a lot of different reasons why you can be having um, a scene that is kind of dragging. And, it's, and if it is if a POV dra- issue, stripping out all your narrative and your dialogue tags and just doing straight dialogue, we'll fix that. And then after you're finished, you can go back in and figure out whose point of view you should be in. Because if you're yeah. just doing dialogue, there's no POV to address. But that might if, make people very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Um, if no, that's a bad example. Okay. So it, it didn't. I didn't have this problem because I knew I, I I anticipated what point of view I needed to be in for the scene. But I don't remember which chapter it was. If you've read Demons, there's a battle scene with the Doombots that is an entire chapter. It's like six thousand. I think it's like six thousand words or something. And I told that battle through the narrowest lens I could, which was the, the lens of a person who pretty much wasn't there, wasn't on scene. They were hearing it and getting very limited information. If I had told that scene from the perspective of somebody on the ground going through the battle from the beginning to the end, it would have probably been three times as long. To convey the same amount of information. Focus is so much broader from where Dom was versus what what Tony had, which all Tony had was what he was getting through his earpiece and some information from Jarvis. So he is just getting told stuff, and but that's a very different experience than the person who's having to who's engaging in a sword battle, right? So um, if I had been telling that from Dom's point of view, I could see how that scene could feel like it was just kind of dragging a little bit. Um, because it would have been... Tony's point of view gave you this emotional weight because he's not there. He's having to listen to this. He's worried. He's got some adrenaline going. Um, so it, it, it moved really quickly because you are living with your living vicariously with well, the reader is with um, Tony's anxiety and his desire to be there and his worry for everybody involved. So it, it was actually, it was very well done. If I picked the wrong point of view for that scene, that scene could have felt heavy, very heavy. Um, and a lot of action and not a lot of emotional content. So, but I have had scenes that felt like they were just, now, so like my last chapter of Demons, I knew it didn't feel like to me like it was dragging, but I knew it was long. And I cut a lot out of what I had anticipated putting in that chapter. Um, and it was still 7,200 words. I think it could have easily been, um, it could have easily been 10 or 12,000 words if I'd put in everything I had planned. 
And a lot of it was just vanity stuff that didn't really matter. It was just wrapping up some things, getting some insight into things. And that, but the, and the reason why I kept that stuff out, and it wasn't a matter. There was one significant thing I went back through and cut out, um, but it's more more because I knew it had to go. And people react oddly when you cut certain things. But some other things I might change later, um, which is that I put an MCU character in that final chapter who didn't really actually further the plot, um, didn't need to be there. And I decided to strip him out to help deal with how, how heavy that last chapter was. Um, and the reason I did that rather than just letting the rough draft go as it is and edit later is because I didn't want to deal with the disappointment when he wasn't in the final cut. So, um, but if, if I had put in everything and that last chapter had been 10 or 11,000 words, no, I don't, no one would have complained. I don't think that would have been the issue, but the pace would have been off because that is, I think, way too much falling action. I actually think it's a little heavy as is, not because I feel like it didn't feel heavy when I wrote it, but it feels like it's a lot to tack on at the end. So, um, I don't know how that's going to come out in the wash because I feel like I stripped that that chapter down pretty hard already. But um, making it like, you know, 40, 50, 60% bigger, it could have felt like just a big, not falling action, it would have felt like a, a plateau at the end, which would never be right. my goal. So, So I think the key thing is to figure out why, you know, you're – your what's throwing your pace off and i've i've done what kira's done which she suggested which is just write all the dialogue and then figure out whose point of view you need to be in and put everything else in um but sometimes you're just telling more than you need to and even in dialogue you can still wind up with the same problem but if your pace feels like it's off the evidence about what the pacing problem is is already there so it wouldn't, you wouldn't feel like it was off if you didn't already have the evidence of the problem there. So it's just a matter of looking at it from different angles and maybe getting some help. I stumbled on my final chapter of um, Finding Atlantis. It took me like five days to write it, uh, because, not because of a pacing issue, but because um, of the emotional um, content and the weight that I had, that I had to shift around um, in those last three or four chapters. Um, because I didn't want it to end, um, and, and I always had that that last scene with him playing in my head. Um, but I didn't want it to end on a really really sad note. Um, and a, a memorial service for his dead mother is kind of sad. And I was like, how do I? And so I was trying to adjust the emotional content um, to 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 make it a hopeful ending. So, you know. I think you did I think you did a beautiful job of making the well, ending. Thanks. It was poignant, yes, but it wasn't I didn't find it sad. It was but it was poignant and hopeful. I thought it was I thought it was beautiful. Finding that song was like the worst part. I mean finding the right song was like really an agonizing choice. <laughs> It was really frustrating. <laughs> and even now, I'm not sure I picked the right one. So, you know, it's just like... 
I mean, I picked a beautiful I, one, but. It's funny, we sold out almost the same amount of time um, on our last chapters. I had done some work on mine, but I was really struggling with how much I had on my list of things to write for that chapter. Um, and I knew it was too much, so I spent just, I stalled out trying to figure out what needed to come off. And then I reconsidered how I was going to tell that chapter um, because I was thinking about doing kind of a style that isn't really my style of writing. And so I ultimately discarded it and decided to just go with something that felt like a little bit more me. Um, but I, I'd always wanted to end um, with them right before their wedding because I, I wanted to bring it back to the story being about them and about the romance and their relationship and stuff, even though that chapter was a lot about showing how their relationship had progressed and where their careers were headed and what was, what was on deck for them. I was trying to really set the, the stage for the future for them, but I still wanted to end it with them. So I knew I wanted to end with the wedding, but it was like, well, or at least before the wedding, I actually had no desire to write an actual wedding. Um, so I always knew I was going to go leading up to the wedding. Um, but weddings I just, are frustrating. Yes, and yes, they had the wedding because I mean I kind of alluded to it, it, it getting um, interrupted several times. Um, I think I had noted that it had been interrupted four times total. Um, so it, it just doesn't matter of like how do I pull all these threads together uh, that feels like it honors what I've already written. Like I could have, I could, if I, if I hadn't done anything with the bots at all in the, in the, um, in that last chapter, I wouldn't have had a word count issue, but I didn't, it didn't feel genuine not to, to deal with them. So I just kind of had, I had that one. I wasn't willing to cut. I cut other stuff, but I wasn't willing to cut the, the update on the bots. So, um, Yeah. But well, it's just, it was, they, it's were, so, they were so present in the story that it would have been like, where the hell are the bots? <laughs> I know, right? So, um, I know it was said somewhere about how many words on average in a chapter. Is, is this a true statement and or do you follow it? Different writers have different narrative styles in terms of and different ways of pacing. Um, the average number of words, when they look at like the, the most popular books of all time, it's five thousand. It's just it's just shy of five thousand words, I think. Um, like forty eight hundred or something like that. So the general rule of thumb that most authors go by, it's sort of like shoot for five thousand words, give or take a thousand, basically. Um, is kind of your rule of thumb. I aim for that. I aim in that four to 6,000 range. That is always my goal for a chapter. If I'm chaptering, not all stories, not, I don't tell all stories in chapters, but um, some authors are, um, I'm reading something now that is told in about 3,000 word pieces, sometimes more like 3,000, 3,500 and it isn't a problem, and I think it's because the story length of the story length it's about thirty thousand words, maybe a little less, and so that length seems to work with the overall length of the story. The author's very consistent about it; her pacing is very good. 
it doesn't strike me as strange. Uh, but anytime I pick up a story that has 500,000, 1,500 word chapters, I just put it right back down. I don't understand that. Just, <laughs> I know James Patterson. I know James Patterson has his boner for um, 500 word chapters, chapters sometimes. James. Yeah, I hate that shit. It's um, a gimmick. I don't like gimmicks. So, but um, for me, my average is between four and eight. Um, and eight is an outlier. And that's usually when, um, from a technical perspective, when I'm trying to slow down my narrative a little and give my readers some room to breathe. And usually it, um, in those chapters, um, there's probably more sex or there's more converse, more intimate conversation, just to give my reader a little bit of breathing room. But eight would be my top out on an actual chapter. <clears throat> Yeah, I've gone as, I've gone to eight a few times. It's definitely not where I like to be because it starts to feel like whoa, dude. Um, I mean, if, if I've gone over that before, it's more like I have done everything I can to to cut it down, and this is what I'm left with. So, um, but I um, make a I make a habit of serving my story content before my OCD. So if I'm over that and I can't see a place to cut it, I just I just let it go. Now. There's a lot more that goes into the pace and the chapter length because a short chapter, and by short, so let's say on the short end we're going to call 4,000 4, words on the short end, and we'll call the long end 7,000 words-ish, okay? A short chapter can actually feel long depending upon what you put in it. If you've got 4,000 words of describing, a, you know, the crown molding, it's going to drag like, whoa, but conversely, you can have a seven thousand word chapter that feels like it flew by, like you're, you know, you're like you're gripping, you know, you're gripping your, your Kindle, going, oh my god, and like your hands are shaking, and it's like that was just riveting, and you just read like a seven, eight thousand word chapter, but you don't feel it because it was just that engrossing. Um, so you can use a slightly shorter chapter to slow your pace, which seems counterintuitive. But it all depends on what you put in it. I would not use a long chapter to put a bunch of really slow stuff in, personally. An 8,000-word chapter with a bunch of slow-paced stuff could be a pace slaughterer. That would be, could be terrible. I'd say break yeah. that up. Yeah. Um, um, 8,000. I think my, 8, my biggest pacing issue when it comes to a chapter would be, like, court scenes. Because court, court scenes get completely though. out of hand. They can get completely out of hand on the word count, though. I mean, you go, you go, yeah, okay, I'm gonna have a little court scene, it'll be three, four, five, ten thousand words. And you're like, shit, this is two chapters now. How am I supposed to break this up? <laughs> recess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but that's exactly what the you want to do in recess, too. It's because you, you look, go back and you look, and you, you then you, have, yeah, you have to insert a recess or an objection or something, and you've got a part A and a part B of that court scene, and you didn't intend that at all. But court scenes, I actually I really enjoy court scenes. And even when they're long, they tend to fly. Um, so they feel like they're really picking up the pace, even if you just read a 7,000-word chapter. So if you've got something that is a little bit weighty, that's kind of slow, you might actually want it in a shorter chapter to keep your narrative from getting burdened. And, you know... Although I would try to probably mix that up a little bit. I had, I think, I think I have, um, I think my slowest chapter is the shortest in Demons. Um, 
don't remember which one it is. It's one of the later ones, like eight or nine, I think. So, I felt like uh, my last chapter dragged dragged for me um, when I was writing it, but when upon reading it later, it, it it was fine. Yeah, well, sometimes it can drag because you're having a hard time writing it. Someone earlier meant, um, asked about episodes and episode links and um, plot points and how you plot episodes. For me, I plot episodes around a single event, so it's event plus ramifications or consequences. Um, which is also pretty much how I plot a chapter. But in um, a chaptered work, some of the consequences linger, and some of the strings of an event can push out three or four chapters later. But when you're doing an episode, your goal is to create um, a discrete pocket in your narrative for your whole series that tells a story on its own, but is also part of a bigger story which is how I write them, which is basically um, something I picked up through osmosis from the guy who wrote Babylon, um, Babylon 5, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure, Straczynski, because um, that's how he tells a narrative episode, episodic series, is that all of his stories were discrete, but they built and built and built and built into this humongous thing. So um, he, told, uh, he told a story <clears throat> basically in five books instead of five series because I mean, it's like one big book when you look at it from a um, technical point of view uh, so it's really great Babylon 5 is awesome I highly recommend it um, from a storytelling point of view I think the the technical aspects of the actual show like it's it's not aging well as far as like special effects go but uh, the story content is is great yeah, it really is. Um, when it comes to plotting episodes, I do think it's important to have an overall arc that you're working toward, unless you're not doing an overall arc, which is fine. You could be doing Monster of the Week, Monster of the Week, Monster of the Week, Monster of the Week. Um, that could be very entertaining, um, using the same set of characters. And, what should, and then you've kind of got like a Monster of the Week type TV show where you've got the same set of characters. People can get very invested in that. It can be a lot of fun. Um, but you can also, if you are doing, like, let's say you were going to do a season of, um, I'll just, I'll just do NCIS as an example. You might have episodes that are just purely solving a case, but you lay down one little thread in it that you're going to pull later to, for your overall plot arc for the whole season. And you don't have to. You could just do case, 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 case. But if you want to have, like, a canon arc like that you're creating, your canon, um, that's where you kind of have to plan that out a little bit more than just sit down with the current episode. Because if you don't know what your overall arc is, how do you know where to drop those little that foreshadowing? How do you know where to start laying in those threads that you can pull later to bring your plot together? Um, and it does have to kind of be foreshadowing. It has to be like a little bit of subtle information dropped here and there. Otherwise, you're just bludgeoning your reader with information with what feels like cliffhangers. So um, so I think, I think if you're kind of, if you're a plotter, and the person who asked this question I know is a plotter, 
knowing what your overall goal is. Like if you look at Central Atlantis, her Kira's first season, she clearly has an overall art arc that she's following. And there are some episodes that feed more into that overall arc than others. So like any time they're dealing with the, 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 the ascended, the ancient, I can't remember those two guys' names. Marius and, oh my God, I've forgotten as well. She can't, she can't remember either. Those two guys. So when you're dealing with those guys or when you're dealing with stuff with the control chair and the, the communication back and forth, all of the episodes that touch on like the mythology that she built, those are all the threads she's laying down throughout the season that she's pulling together towards the end with the big event at the end. Okay, so there's clearly an overall arc. But there are also episodes that are more, more contained. They're more isolated. They're more their own little package. So if, and, I, and like I said, another person who asked the question is a plotter. So I think that's the important piece is to understand for you even if you don't have every episode plotted out, it's to understand what your overall goal is for your first batch of episodes. Bastion, thank you. Understand what your overall goal is, and then as you're plotting your individual episodes, figure out when you need to start dropping in threads or laying down some foreshadowing that you can work to pull on as you advance in your season. But get yeah, the, the, the takeaway is is to either um, have a goal, acknowledge it, and lace it through your narratives in your episodes, or don't have a goal and just tell monster of the week stories. Um, early episodes of Criminal Minds, they were all very much um, monster of the week, and as the series matured, um, you, you got character focused episodes. We learned more about the different characters. We learned about Spencer and his mother. We learned about Derek's past. Um, we learned uh, about um, Hotchner's marriage and how it's falling apart. Uh, you you learn you just learn a lot about the characters as the series matured. But when it first started, it was mostly just monster of the week. Yeah. So there was a question now, about X scene structure up at the top. Let's go back to that I one. Missed that one. Um, it was. I want to mention, when it comes to episodes, um, X-Files is an interesting example of primarily Monster of the Week. But they started laying down their mythology, their, what they called the myth arc, from the beginning. And that carried on for more than 10 years, I think. Um, so... And sometimes it, there's nine seasons, so almost ten, almost a decade. They they were slowly pulling on, and then eventually it kind of culminates. They have to eventually pull hard on all those all those threads that they've been weaving into the story. But I mean, that's where we get the term, as far as I know, "Monster of the Week" from was from the X Files, because so many of the episodes were focused on um, solving those goofy cases. Okay, but then there was the that one episode find... that you absolutely had to see. Because if you didn't yes, see it, you were going to be fucked up. 
And people even even have like they had you know websites devoted to letting you know which were the myth arc episodes. Like you need to watch these episodes, and it was like two or three episodes per season that you absolutely had to watch to understand the canon of the show. And everything else could be watched almost out of order. No, you know, it didn't matter. You could watch them whenever. You could not watch them at all, and you wouldn't be lost because, you know, they were monster of the week. Did you find the chap? Did you find this with a chapter thing that you asked? It says, a corollary to Rogue's question and mine, how do you end a scene when there is no natural place to break it? I don't encounter this problem because water. Well, but can you explain what you mean by there's no natural place to break it? It would help to understand what you mean by not having a natural place to break Trying to, I'm trying to picture it. I'm sorry, that's just kind of alien to me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to put a scenario together in my head, um, because of the nature of, of how I build a plot. Um, I used to. Well, sometimes it's hard to figure out. Um, this is gonna sound weird, but for a long time, I had a hard time with transitions, like from one part of a scene to another, how much, how much do I need to wind the scene down? How do I need to transition to the next scene? And scene transitions were just a nightmare for me because for starters, I had a creative writing teacher who said you never use scene breaks ever. There were no what? scene breaks allowed. You, ha- you had that. Yeah. This, I'm, I kid you not. So for like, I don't know, five or six years, this was in college. I'm trying to figure out how to write without scene breaks. So transitions were a nightmare because I had to figure out how to have this long flowing narrative um, that was only broken up by chapters. So um, I just admire my first moment where I want to go back in time and stab somebody because he, (laughs) he needed to be taken out for the good of everybody in that classroom. She, but yeah, she, whoever, Um, whatever. Yeah. But it it's a um well, when it comes to long conversations, one of the things that can be a, a an issue with conversations is putting in all of it and ask yourself when you've got a long conversation, look at every line of dialogue and see do you need it. Because you need enough to not make their com- their conversation seem con- confrontive. So you can't leave off all the niceties, but do you need every single bit of it? So like instead of showing all of their little chit-chat, catching up and getting comfortable with each other, you would just give it like one sentence that said, you know, they spent the next, you know, five minutes catching up on old times before moving on to discussing um, Tony's inheritance. Um, that way, you aren't actually writing that ten minutes of catching up because it's completely irrelevant. So, hi, how are you? Blah 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 blah. And then you give one sentence to dismiss ten minutes of conversation, and then you get right into it, uh, uh, the important part. And also, be careful about relaying things the audience already knows in dialogue. So, like. Um, 
let's say John needs to tell Patrick something that the reader already knows. Instead of having the whole conversation, unless it's like an important thing to refresh the reader on, um, do a quick summary, you know. Um, John explained, you know, John spent the next half hour explaining everything they learned about Karen's death to his father. Rather than having two pages of John explaining everything he learned about Karen's death to his father. So there are ways to take informative conversations and focus on the important part of the conversation. Also, By, you know, one way huh? to end your well, one way to end or break your scene is if you feel like you're just dragging and there's no way to do it, look to real life. Um, the easiest and best way to, to jerk your characters out of a moment is to insert somebody else into it. Um, somebody walks into the room and they have to stop talking. Uh, one of them gets a phone call, and then that phone call can move into your next event. So the phone call happens, and your main character says, okay, I have to go. Um, we'll catch up. Whoop is catching up later in the scene, and then you move into your next plot point. So if there's an interruption or, um, you know, they, they have to go do something or, they, or there's an appointment they have to go to, just use real-life events that happen to you every day to move your characters out of situations if you feel like you've, you've gone too far. But don't use this, this gimmick all the time because then it will get old. Yeah, like the character always gets a phone call in the middle of a conversation. I see, we've seen this. We've all seen this. It gets ridiculous. Um, Do you want to break well, that up? Yeah. We've talked in other – there are three elements that feed into scene breaks. We've talked about this in another thing, which is that location, time, change in location, change in time, change in point of view. Typically, you need two of the three to do a scene break, but – some of them, it's like if you double down hard on them, you like if you double down hard. What I'll call a hard double down on a on a time change. It's like it's three days later. You should do a scene break. You should if that's the only change. Like they're in the same exact spot, but it's three days later. You still need a scene break because they have moved around. You know, it, it happened off screen, but they did move around. So technically, you've actually got the two. But what I did is when I was struggling to get out of this mode with this terrible writing teacher who got me writing just one long flowing narrative, um, what I started doing when I was trying to learn how to do scene breaks is I would get to the end of what I felt like I needed to tell, and I'd be stumped for how to end the scene. So what I just started doing was putting placeholders in for called end scene, right? And I would, with, with, the, with the mindset that I would come back and put in a transition, a, a graceful transition in my mind out of that scene. And sometimes I would actually need a graceful transition into the next scene. And I would put these placeholders in because they weren't plot critical, so I didn't feel like I needed to write them in a, in a linear fashion. And what I found when I first started doing this was 90% of the time there was nothing to write. The scene was over. I just had it in my head that I needed more. So most of the time I'd go back and read that and go, okay, how do I transition out of the scene? And I'd read the scene and I'd go, oh, it's done. I would delete the placeholder and move on. And you may find that the problem is more a problem of perception than a problem of technique. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's what I did. It's worth trying. 
it's worth you know you want to as as a writer explore different techniques to to get past stumbling blocks. So you try this and see if it works. And if that doesn't work, you try something else until you find a method that works for you and you add it to your toolbox. Then and your toolbox should be um, personal to you. What's in my toolbox doesn't work 100% of the time for even me. So there's no reason to say that anything in my toolbox would work for you. So you got to figure out what works for you, put it in your toolbox, and move on. And if it doesn't work, throw it out. <laughs> Don't keep it. <laughs> Don't keep trying it because you're just beating your head up against the wall, and that's ridiculous. I got this one writer friend who continuously tries to write in first person despite the fact that he hates it and he's not any good at it. In the first year, I was trying to I, – I spent a lot of time trying to, to, to get him there. And then one day I was like, okay, no, you, you just, this, this isn't natural for you, um, so you need to stop. I don't know why you're, I don't know why you're torturing us both. Um, we can get you a therapist. <laughs> it just doesn't yeah. make any sense but he wants to conquer he wants to have this POV in his toolbox so he keeps trying and trying and trying and trying and trying but he's not trying like all the time now it's like he'll work on regular stuff and then pick up a short story and try to do it in first person which is better than what he was doing which was trying to write a novel form first person and it was not working um, but he's really stubborn and it, so don't be stubborn. There's no need to torture yourself with something you love. Because you can make yourself hate it. And wouldn't that be terrible? Yeah, you don't want to make yourself nutty. Um, there was another question. There actually was a couple more questions. Um this is about the issue of how not to character bash. Uh, I've come across a lot of fan fiction that seems to deal with the issue of the main character having wealth and other characters using the main character for their money. Example, Tony Stark and Steve Rogers, although presumably all the Avengers. Um, usually this entitled characteristic is used to bash, and it's hard to take these stories seriously. Do you have advice for dealing with this happening in a story but not fall into character bashing? Um, well, um, my well, general advice for this kind of thing is inject, try to inject reality versus, and the reality is, is that people sometimes do get very entitled, but usually most people when confronted with their entitlement, they might get defensive. They might react badly. Um, but they don't usually double down on it. Like, no, you, I mean, I know what you're talking about because I have read those MCU stories where Tony tries to draw the line in the sand and say, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and, you know, like all of a sudden people like double down or triple down on their, on their entitlement and telling him that he's not good for anything but making them equipment. It, it feels a little much. I, I understand what you mean by that. Um well, I think it's because it it speaks to characterization and it and it becomes an out of character moment. You don't see those moments in the MCU, and I'm not sure, but I've never read the comics consistently, so I don't think you're seeing them in the comics either. Um, 
personally, I don't think Steve Rogers gives a, sh- a single bit of he doesn't give a shit that, that that Tony's a billionaire. It doesn't even I mean it's 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 not even on his radar as an issue. Now Steve has a lot of issues with Tony and Cannon, but his money and wanting to use him for his money is not one of them. I actually I don't think, think he think might actually actively dislike like about his money. Right? Except that he I don't needs, think I yeah. do I do agree with the general. I think it's probably a reasonable perception that he does at least value Tony for his resources because it helps him look for Bucky. Because Tony had to be funding all that. There was no shield at that point. So uh, I think it's a matter of, I think people take that to like the nth degree, um, but there is, there is something that happens um, where when you have, and you don't even have to be wealthy with where just where you have like maybe more than sometimes the people around you where they can become, they very much start to expect certain things from you. And it can, it can be on a very small scale, like the person who always has money to go out and go out to the movies, the basically a little extra discretionary income. They have the money to pay for their friends and they can't go out. And all of a sudden their friends are expecting them to pay all the time. Most people, when confronted with that kind of situation, might feel a little bit of embarrassed, but they back off. The hardcore you owe me thing is very is what's probably ringing as untrue. Because it's narcissism. Um, yeah. It's very self-focused and very self-centered. Um, and you can say a lot of things about um, different characters in the MCU, Natasha Romanoff, um, and and their motivations, but none of them are motivated with that kind of narcissism. Some of them have a corrupt worldview, but they but they're all in their own way very heroic. Uh, so and that kind of her- heroism doesn't correlate with that kind of narcissism. I mean, I could see, and I address this a little bit in Sentry. That I do think that with somebody, if you're if you're living with somebody like Tony Stark, that you could not even notice that you're not being appreciative. But usually, having that pointed out to most people would draw them up, right? It makes right. them kind of go, "Oh, you're right. I'm I'm not owed an entire floor um, in a Manhattan high rise." You know, I mean, but the thing is, when people are given a lot of things they can get used to it and not notice that, that they've developed a self-entitlement thing going on. But most people notice, most people don't react like I see in fan fiction when this kind of thing is pulled in. Like I said, there's usually, in my experience, there's some embarrassment. There's um, sometimes there's some awkwardness, but it's usually not um, the double down thing. And I think that's where the bashing feel comes in is that instead of just backing off and going, I'm sorry, you're right, I, I don't have any right to expect this of you, thank you for everything you've done, which seems like the reasonable response, there's this, we're going to go all in and be all extra about all the stuff that we think you should give us. So I think that's what feels like the bashing element is because it takes these characters from being just sort of not paying attention to the fact that they've really become used to living Tony's lifestyle, even though they haven't done anything to earn it, basically, 
um, instead of them just being a little bit negligent and unaware, they become obnoxious and abusive about it. And I think that's where the line is, is you've got to, you've got to, you've got to be able to, people need to be able to communicate like adults and say, look, I don't owe you a place to live. I don't owe you weapons and equipment. And they would be like, oh, you're right. There's no reason why you, a private citizen, should be funding all of this, you know. Um, so just having a reasonable response, I think, is a way that you can address that kind of thing if you want to address it and it not feel like character bashing. That's my interpretation of the whole thing. And, and yeah, I think you one see of the, the ways same thing in Harry Potter. I hate some characters, and one of the ways I avoid bashing them is just not using them. <laughs> just keeping them completely off screen as much as possible, so that I don't bash them. I mean, you know, and it's probably not the most, uh, it's not the most productive choice sometimes, but, um, it's what I do. Yeah. I mean, MCU is interesting because Tony did, Tony tended to canonically give, give extravagantly. And that can really backfire on very badly. Um, but yeah, what you saw in, um, in in canon was sometimes them not behaving in a way that was you know very adult and it was sort of annoying about it. But that it should have been able to be handled pretty easily. But yes, can fanfic does tend to double down on that kind of thing it, it, sometimes in a really astonishing way. So um, I mean, I. I read I read a story like way way back um, a long time ago. I, I I couldn't I couldn't even tell you if it was actually on Ao3, but it probably was. Where the Steve's team who had been in hiding were thinking that what they should do is kidnap Tony and make him make them weapons and take care of them. Um, that is that is like what I mean is like like that's doubling down on the entitlement in a way that I can't even wrap my head around how that makes sense. That's like out terrorist shit. Yeah. That's literally it, it, the I mean, plot of Iron Man 1. Yeah, it exactly. It exactly <laughs> is the plot of Iron Man 1. And and yet we're supposed to, you know, and yet they're all like sitting there nodding at each other, like six people going, yeah, this is the thing to do. We should kidnap Tony and make him make weapons. It's like, wow. <laughs> um, and yeah, it does. Well, the last like character who did that didn't get out of it alive. I'm just saying. I mean, that team did enough wrong, in my opinion, um, that you don't need to inject artificial stuff to have that kind of confrontation there. Uh, that, art, that, that sort of artificial way that real adults don't actually behave is where you're brought up short. Your, your, your suspension of disbelief is challenged in a, in a deep, deeply profound way. It's like, that's just not going to happen. I think the the main point is that you want to keep um it's very easy to take a character like Jennifer Keller and twist her just a little bit because in canon she's already a nightmare. I mean, just from like the medical ethics point of view alone, she's a nightmare. Uh 
Sam Carter has the potential to be an absolute nightmare because when she gets in her science, when she gets her science hard on, everything goes back to back seat, including other people's lives. And I think it's really, um, really highlighted in that black hole episode where O'Neill had to point out to her that, she, that they were literally watching people die. But she was more fascinated by the black hole than she was the people who were literally dying in front of her and who would be dying for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. I'm not sure what the number was in the, in the show. Um, Pepper Potts is, uh, she's very um, intent on being Tony Stark's mother rather than his, than his lover. And it's very easy to turn that into her thinking that Tony is incompetent, which really did very well in um, Demons. Um, and that basically that Tony can't survive without her. And that's, it's very easy to believe that she's, that is her mind set based on her canon actions. And you look at, so you look at your character that, that you don't like and you figure out why you don't like them. And sometimes it's very easy to do. Um, and you have to decide how you're going to treat that dislike, whether if you're going to embrace it and, you know, put a little realism into their actions so that it's not, I don't think highlighting a character's bad characteristics is bashing. I agree. I agree. Um, I prefer in, it's my preference in fandoms where, especially that are light on female characters, um, that if I'm going to be breaking up the canon relationship in order to make my ship happen, that I not treat the, you know, um, the female character, female half of the character relationship as, you know, an obnoxious horror show. Um, So I typically, if I'm breaking up Tony and Pepper, try to have it be amicable and they stay friends. Um, But the thing is, is um, that Pepper is actually already an obnoxious horror show. Oh wait. Yeah, she is. I is feel. That, is that just, I feel like. He, <laughs> no, I have a hard time with her in canon because I feel like she's constantly haranguing Tony. I mean, in Infinity War, when she said, "Tell me you're not on that ship," and she was so upset about him being and told him to come back. You know, what was she expecting him to do? Just let aliens attack New York? I mean, it was just it was so bizarre. And it was just it just typified her characterization. So in other stories, I have been a little bit more gentle in my handling of her, even though it's not really the way I see her behavior. But I do feel like that since I, since I've written my prior stories and stuff, that MCU has like given us a bunch of female characters I like. So I felt like I could just deal with her realistically. <laughs> in this story. Um, you know, it's just, I don't like kind of going after like the one female character in um, a story, even if it feels like it's a, a, a reasonable interpretation, I prefer to just not write about them. If it's like one of only one or two female characters. And for a long time, we had Pepper and Natasha, who were both awful. True, truly. And it comes to something like Harry Potter. If I'm not bashing a Weasley, it could be a call for help. You guys might want to come investigate our circumstances. I could be being held hostage or something. Because I hate them. And I'm, that's just that's just the quirk of my uh, of my function in that fandom. And if Ron and Jenny aren't dead, I'm bashing them. And maybe even if they are dead, I'm bashing them. I mean, you know. So, yeah. 
But you're all up in that. You own it. You know that's what you do. You put the you put it in the warnings. Weasley bashing your head, which you know, like I said, we expect it if not if not full on Weasley murder. Um, there was a follow on <laughs> question to that. Um, do you have advice for trying to expand beyond your personal feelings about a character, good or bad? Um, sometimes I do challenge myself with how I feel about a character. I did in Century with writing about Steve. I've been trying to write more Steve positive stuff that occurs before Winter Soldier to kind of push myself a little bit to reimagine him. Um, but some characters I'm not interested in reimagining. I like I'm not interested in trying to reinterpret Natasha. The best I can do is just leave her out of the story. That is the best I could do, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to. Uh, I really wouldn't want to try to because I I just can't I I can't justify her behavior, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to try. So she's she's one I, I think, it's better for me if I if, to leave out than to if I if I'm not wanting to go to a negative place just leave her out. You have to move them and give them better choices um, early on before the break. Like when I write uh, a positive Jennifer Keller, it's because she never did that bullshit. Not really. All people think that my break, my break with the with the killer character and, and and why I hate her so much is because of McKay, but it's not. It's actually because of Ronan. Um, in, in that episode where they're on the ship and um, he has to disable the ship uh, and he chooses to, to shoot, a tray of crystals to, to stop the ship so that they could do whatever the rest of the mission was. And I forget. And she basically treated him like he was an idiot. I was done. Mm-hmm. It was borderline racist. And I, it, it was definitely specious um, considering the content and he's an alien. Um, and it was offensive as fuck. Now Wanda, Wanda's a rapist and I have no, I have no interest in, redeeming her and um, I would never write her as anything less than exactly what she is unless she's a dead body which is my preference yeah I mean if she ever were to come across Wanda in the MCU for those of you who weren't keeping up with the chat room um, on the podcast yeah not not, from Keller to Wanda yeah not Wanda from not Wanda from the X-Men which some infographics call them the same character they are not okay just saying but anyway um, Wanda in the well, the Wanda from the X Men I mean, is actually the daughter of Magneto, um, right? So she's a, she's, right? a, she's a mutant, which is completely right, which is completely different than being Hydra. Uh, but I mean, Wanda, I think Wanda would suffer decapitation if she ever tried anything with with Tony in the Demons universe. So it's probably a good thing that I don't go out that far. Um, I really have no use for her. Um, I mean, she, she she mind raped Bruce Banner. I just that's that's over. It's it's like and Tony. I mean, but still Bruce, right? And the Hulk. Yeah, that's just not okay. Not okay to do it to anybody. But he, he, you know, he he's like he's like the, he's like the golden child. But just don't do that. So, um, and and that's my that's my biggest problem with Natasha too. I don't care how all over the place she is in a lot of ways. I mean, I may not have liked her manipulative behavior, um, the way she was manipulative with Tony, the bullshit games, um, you know, the, the bullshit psychological profiles. I may not have liked that stuff, but it didn't make me just not be able to stand seeing her on the screen. 
what she did to Bruce in Age of Ultron, I I can't I can't it, her character just actually makes me feel physically ill. So, let's see how the question was phrased. Um, expand beyond your personal feelings about a character, good or bad. Some characters, if it's kind of like a mild milder issue, like my issues with Steve or even Sam, I can kind of work on reimagining that kind of thing. But when it's something that's really integral that I find a, like deeply um, morally offensive in a character, I'm not interested in working on that. And the best I can do with them in a story is not include them. Because if they're there, they're going to have a tough time with me. Well, it boils down between the fact that a lot of Steve's actions in the MCU are built entirely on ignorance. Yeah. And his circumstances he, are so far beyond his um, knowledge of that he's So it's easy to, like, okay, we're going to educate Steve and fix him because that's a problem. But you look at someone like Wanda Maximoff, who who, who mind-raped several people, um, who was willingly Hydra, who willingly worked with Ultron, who um, really, I think, only changed sides because it benefited her. And I still think it is still honestly in my head canon that she was um, largely manipulating um, a lot of people in Civil War. And that her end goal was probably to see Tony Stark dead. I still think she wanted him dead. That she that he had served his purpose and he'd gotten rid of Ultron and um, now he could be dead. And um, it would be fine. And I think that she manipulated Rogers and the rest of them to um, to get her goal, and not to look like it was her fault. I think you have to acknowledge that Steve doesn't have the emotional and mental tools to change his circumstances without help. Um, because he wakes up in the future coming literally out of a world war. He is thrown immediately practically into an alien invasion, and then after that he is used systematically by by S.H.I.E.L.D. as a weapon. Um, he doesn't have the um, the emotional tools or the emotional intelligence he needs to figure out he's fucked up. Yeah. Which is why giving him that wake-up call in Thick is so satisfying. To have that moment where he's like, oh, God, I'm really fucked up. Because the MCU never gave him that. That's just my personal opinion on Steve Rogers. I'm looking forward to um, to, to working on his psychological issues in November. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be getting all the therapy. He is a grown man. But he's a grown man that came out of an era that didn't have the internet 
that in some places, I mean, like, there were large swaths of the United States that didn't have electricity during World War II. It wasn't a staple in life. There are plenty of people who didn't have it, plenty of people who were still using outhouses. Um, I would also say that, yes, he's a grown-up. I, I do not dispute that ultimately, you know, grown-ups are responsible for their choices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think it's worth, like, taking into consideration that most of us, fortunately, I would say, don't know what it's truly like to be completely alone, to not really have support, to not really have family, to not have some kind of structure to which we have a safe place to fall. And Steve wakes up 70 years in the future with nothing. His only, he has no safe place to land. And, and in a way, I would think that that would foster paranoia and suspicion and at least shield with something he sort of recognized. So, yes, he's Why because of his affiliation but, with Peggy Carter. Exactly. It's exactly because of his affiliation with Peggy, Peggy Carter. Um, I just think it's a very difficult situation that he's in. Um, There's almost in a lot of ways pitiable. I mean, I feel honestly feel sorry for him until he starts doing a bunch of crazy shit that hurts people. But, it, you know, it, it, I can understand why and, – and I do think that S.H.I.E.L.D. really capitalized on on the fact that he I – think, I, think, I think him being alone in the world basically would, was the easiest way to manipulate him. He had nowhere to go. He had nobody. He had no purpose. He didn't understand the world he was in. So, yes, he's a grown-up, but he's also an incredibly tragic figure when he comes out of the ice. I um, The whole thing with Steve and Tony in um, Siberia, it was in Siberia, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Steve and them fighting and Steve almost killing Tony. Um, Steve in that moment was defending his only connection I'm not excusing it because I am team Iron Man all the way but Steve I honestly think no matter how you look at it whether you look at it as a platonic relationship or as a romantic relationship platonic you can go platonic um, that Bucky Barnes is the love of Steve's life and in that moment he was defending Bucky and it was I would say probably, I mean, there, there was absolutely, hello, I'm just, I'm just I'm trying, I'm trying to articulate it. It's, um, oh, sorry, it went quiet. There's, there's like, a lot oh. of emotional. There's a lot of emotional trauma because um, I mean, he's got Bucky back. Um, he's defending him um, from someone he's been in battle with. Um, there's the incidents in Ultron. There's Wanda's influence telling him that, that, that Tony is dangerous. And here is Tony trying to attack this single source of um, stability from his former life that, that 
that Steve has. I mean, you can see. I mean, it's a perfect storm of terrible. Yeah. And I don't think Steve considers himself a And maybe if he did acknowledge the fact that um, that he is a victim in some ways, he could have gotten some psychological help, um, which would have been very good for him. I think it's hard for him to admit that. I think it's hard for I think though that. that I think he just once the whole Captain America thing started, um, I sort of explore that in Century a little bit. That he just was sort of pretending, pretending like he knew what he was doing in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, he never even got trained to be a soldier. Basically, I mean, he was like he has what a hot minute in basic training, and then nothing until he ends up defying orders to save Bucky. And again, you see him making dr- dramatic mistakes whenever Barnes is involved. Because um, he has no ability whatsoever to separate his emotional um, connection with his friend from and, and make rational decisions. Um, anyway, we're down to 23 seconds. Uh, so you guys have a fantastic Saturday. Um, are you going to sprint? Uh, yeah. Okay. We're going to sprint over the sprint channel. Say goodnight, Jelly. We're going to like eight seconds. Jelly, Jelly. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.